Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Oh, and how you doing out there? It's tough with rising numbers and more restrictions and not knowing when it's all going to end. But, and here's the but, it will end and things will pick up and we're going to get through this. Right now, it's a day to time, listening to the experts and doing our bit with the uh, social distancing and the masking up and everything. Uh, even though, you know, when you mask up, your glasses might fog up like a London winter, you still got to do it. Now... Over the last few years, I've become more worried about the health of the older people I love, and COVID has really only added to that. So we thought it an opportune time to ask two guests on the show, both who have a lot to say about the elderly. The first is Dr. Olivia Gobbo. Now, Olivia is a highly experienced geriatrician, fellow of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians, an academic at Monash University and past president of the Victorian branch of the Australian New Zealand Society of Geriatric Medicine. That's the angism. Today on the show, we will be asking Olivia about some of the things to watch out for in older people uh, and the older people we do care about. Now, we first met Jean Kitson in The Big Gig, which is on telly, I think, in the late 80s, and we grew to love her in her frequent appearances on radio, telly, and her columns in the paper. Following on from her last book, which is just so brilliantly named, it was called You're Still Hot to Me, The Joys of Menopause. Every time I read that title, I get a smile. Jean has penned a new one about looking after aging parents. It's called We Need to Talk about mum and dad, a practical guide to parenting our ageing parents. And Nurse Pam Sandwich, I mean, Jane Kitson, will be in to uh, chat with us. Now, if that ain't enough brain food for Sunday morning, we'll also be joined by our two regular panellists, Nurse EpiPen, who, if you know her, has the best nom de plume on the planet. And Dr G-Spot, who, even if you don't know her, has a pretty damn good name too. All this and music and the latest in the medical journal, so join me, Dr Mal, and the team for the next hour of radiotherapy. And my fingers are crossed. Are you there, Nurse EpiPen? Yes. Oh. Good morning, all. Am I on? You're Can on, you hear ba- me? You're on, baby. You are on. And <laughs> how about Dr. G-Spot? Are you there? I am here. How are you, Dr. Malpractice? Can I tell you the amount of relief that I'm feeling right now after last uh, the last show we did and I struggled for about two minutes to get you guys on air and nothing was working? I came in about an hour and a half earlier today just to make sure. So it's all good. All good. Now, I think we've all been in trauma counselling since that time. <laughs> <laughs> I wake up in a cold sweat at night. Sometimes we're living that moment. Hey, guys, lots going on, obviously. Now, um, Nurse EpiPen, you... We, we were about to discuss this off air, but I said, no, hold it for the show. Tell us about masks and glasses. No, no, it was lippy. It was lippy, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, so, um, so one of our panellists on the show is in New South Wales, Lucky Duck. But all of us here in Melbourne and in Victoria and regional Victoria will soon be wearing these full on. Um, so it's masks. So... Surgical masks, cloth masks, scarves, Bunnings NK42, 4987s, sock masks, G-string masks, G-string makeup masks. masks. We are, there's a whole list of them. But it's I think you have to work. We've, we're it's trial and error as to what works for you. So mm. I have been wearing a surgical mask at work, but in the around the streets I've got a cloth mask with three layers and it's 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 an interesting new dilemma and um, we're sadly getting used to them and I have to say I've turned into a bit of a microbiological policewoman mm. because if you're wearing a mask and you start touching your face mm. and then you touch your nose and then it's all over your hands and mm. I think that was why there was a bit of um, sort of a slowness in introducing masks because they might not be the best thing but because people can't distance or physically distance from each other this has become a a very good intervention but you have to wear them properly and I don't think everybody's going to be doing that properly but it's better than nothing. I I love that hilltop that hilltop hoods song Um, it's called I'm Good have you have you any have you heard it guys oh it's just the 
best song. It's been going around in my head for the last two months. And one of the lines is uh, something like, I'm wearing a mask. It's not a sex thing. Oh, maybe it's a bit of a sex thing. (laughs) (laughs) So so I've come up with a few lines to how to help people not touch their masks. Oh, good idea. Yeah, so uh, uh, um, Jeepers, are you aware that you just touched your mask? Oh, oh. And then, um, so hang on. This is so. This is what you say to people. This is my. These are my words or my phrases to people when you say jeepers. Yeah, I say jeepers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I've I've got some hand sanitizer because I know how itchy that mask looks for you. Mm. Or, and how how do you time the four hours with your surgical mask because you have to throw them out after four hours. Anyway, it's just getting the conversation going. But what I really loved in the paper yesterday, speaking of comedians, was Kitty Flanagan. She did a really good thing about um, writing a few of her thoughts. So masks, they're weird but safe. You can pretend to be a surgeon. (laughs) Uh, You could. um, And a patient of mine in New South Wales has been wearing a mask and everybody thinks that they've got COVID. So they run away from them where they wear one. Um, and am I speaking okay? Do you know I'm smiling at you? Should you say that? Or um, and you could rob a bank. Or uh, and um, are human rights being challenged by wearing one? Mm. Well, we all know the answer to that. Definitely not. Um, just on that point about emotions and stuff, I was speaking to uh, what's his on air name, <laughs> Doctor Doolittle. That's right. You know, uh, one of our psychiatrist friends. And we were chatting about how it's hard to convey your emotions to somebody when you've got a mask on because so much is given away by your facial expressions. In fact, a lot of most of our communication is nonverbal, really. And he was saying he was practicing in the mirror, sort of exaggerating his eye movements so that patients could actually see what he was trying to communicate, which I just think is a whole new avenue of trying to explore. And pediatricians are doing that too. Yeah. Because little so, kids are so... And, and, and that's what they've... There's eyebrow fatigue. <laughs> eyebrow fatigue. I can imagine so, people doing weights, little little tiny weights on their eyebrows, doing little push-ups. Yeah, yeah. But and so also, that, so getting away from Kitty Flanagan, these are my thoughts, that um, there's some risks with loop earrings. You can f- yeah. take your mask off and you can lose your best silver earring loop. Happens to me all the time. Um, uh, um, but one of the things that I think is quite good, and kids are getting into this, is that you're part of the gang. Yeah, it's yeah. a new thing. Everybody's wearing them. The kids are wanting to be part of the gang, so let's all wear them. Um, and I, in the cold, I've been finding that I've got a nice warm face when mm. I'm walking the streets with the dog. Mm. Uh, and when I take it off, my face feels really cold. Mm. I feel naked so, without a mask now. Seriously, I go to the house yes. and I think so, I'm, I'm not wearing something. You know, Is it my jocks? Is it my T-shirt? It's my mask. Go back inside, get my mask. And then as of today, because I haven't put lipstick on, is because when you put lipstick on and you wear your mask, then you get lipstick inside your mask. And it's I, it's a plan. I heard this report. This is what I was about to say to you off air before. I heard this report that there is this thing called the lipstick index. And it uh, it's basically, it measures how much lipstick is bought because uh, lipstick is a, is a well, I, I don't know, but I, I've heard is a small price item and it's a luxury good and it makes people feel good about themselves. And it's a good marker of where the economy is going. But now because people are wearing masks, then there's no there's little requirement for lipstick. So it's become a measure which is now not so useful. And in fact, I was saying this to one of the doctors at work and she said, yeah, I just bought some more eyeshadow because I want, you know, and they gave me a free lippy. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, hey. Oh, there you go. Dr. G-Spot, what's news with you? Uh, I wanted to tell you guys about a recent article I've been reading in PLOS One, and mm. it, um, it sort of reminded me of that old saying, laughter is the best medicine. And I wanted to ask you guys, EpiPen and, and Dr. Malpractice, how often do you think we laugh each um, on average each day? Uh, in time, in hours? Um, just in number, like in frequency. Oh, I'd laugh probably about a hundred times a day, I reckon. Uh, I'd go a good, good twenty. Oh, you'd be more than that. So the higher, lower, uh, ding, 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 nurse EpiPen, you have won it. It's actually eighteen. Really? 
No. Nah. So Dr. Malpractice, you are laughing a lot, which is I, great. But I, well, in fact, I mostly laugh at my own jokes. So I'm like constantly <laughs> laughing. But anyway. So I think aside from the laughing at your own jokes, it's probably around 18 then, Dr. Malpractice. So I think in, in these COVID times where it can be quite hard to have a laugh, I thought this was a really cool study um, where they, it, they followed 41 people in Switzerland and they received an alert on their mobile to prompt them to answer a couple of questions about how they were feeling. And these questions related to the frequency and intensity of their laughter, their reason for laughing, as well as any stressful events or, or stress symptoms they had experienced since the last alert. And they were getting these alerts um, several times a day. So it's a pretty intense study over two weeks. And the first result was as expected. They found that um, the more subjects laughed, um, the stressful events they were experiencing were actually uh, perceived as less stressful. So it really was laugh laughter being that medicine. But the second result was a bit of a, a bit of a, I suppose, confusing one. And it was that um, the intensity of the laughter wasn't related to their stress symptoms. So you would think, oh, if I laugh more heartily, I might be less stressed. But really, it was just the action of laughing. So mm. from a little chuckle through to a full belly laugh, it all seemed to be pretty, um, pretty helpful. So I was wondering, again, a question for Nurse EpiPen and Dr. Malpractice. What are you guys laughing at these days in these tricky times? Oh, I have to say some of the jokes going around. There is a gorgeous one about an Italian man who's wearing a mask and then his wife is thinking that looks nice and it matches his shirt and then he turns around and then he's got a bare bottom and a hole where they've cut, he's cut out the fabric to make his mask and he's got a bare bottom and it's so funny. I've, I've said that one's really funny too. Yeah, I've, I've seen so that sweet. one. But I just, you know, a study of the Swiss, you don't, I mean, in terms of nationalities, I, you know, I don't know that many Swiss comedians. I mean, a, a Swiss funny, they seem quite, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Swiss don't, I mean, who's, what's a they funny, so what's a funny culture? Neutral. Neutral, exactly. <laughs> very neutral, exactly. <laughs> who's, who's a fu Australians are pretty funny. Um, English are pretty funny, you know. Maybe the Swiss have their very own genre of comedy. Ah, maybe, maybe they do. I, I was going to say, I reckon our audience will reach their quota of 18 today before the show is up. In fact, very I know as I know a Swiss guy and he's actually very funny now that I, well, he's half Swiss and he's quite funny. So I, I take all that back. Okay. <laughs> yes. In Thank you, Dr. Malpractice. That is fantastic. Well, that's good to know. So a laugh, laughing really is the best medicine. Absolutely. I think I've had 10 already, 10 laughs already. <laughs> I've only got 10 to go. Okay. You've reached so your you quota. Smash it out the park today, EpiPen. Get to that 100 that Dr. Malpractice is averaging. <laughs> There's a challenge. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. And joining us now is Dr. Olivia Gobbo. G'day, Olivia. Hi, how are you, Dr. Mal? I must see when you spoke. And the sound came through. <laughs> My heart rate just went down, and I feel really, really good. So, thank you so much oh, for joining us. Um, good morning, Dr. Gobbo, Dr. Olivia Gobbo. How are you? Good, thanks. Um, Epi, how are you? Yeah, yeah, good, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. So, uh, I think one of the burning questions for me was today was thinking about might as well clear the air with this one about some of the. Um, issues in aged care with the people with COVID. And then we can go into a bit more about aged care and talking about Jean's book. But could you comment a little bit about how difficult it might be for an aged, uh, for an elderly person to have to move to a, a, a new place after they've been there for several years during this COVID crisis? Is, how are they coping? What's it like? I mean, I think it's been really um, terrible for all of us watching what's gone on in the last couple of weeks. I'm glad that um, that we had a bit of a laugh earlier on because there haven't been that many when working in aged care at the moment because it's really been a terrible um, and probably a predictable situation really since the pandemic sort of started back in February. I know a lot of aged care um, facilities have been... Um, working and preparing for the pandemic. I think 
you know, there's been a lot of talk in the media about them not having been well enough prepared, but a lot of places were making that attempt. But I just think they're not, you know, properly resourced really. In the initial stages, um, a lot of the um, work was around trying to get hold of PPE because a lot of the, um, the uh, emphasis was on getting PPE for um, hospitals and the aged care facilities had to kind of, you know, um, fend for themselves. So that was the sort of the first thing. And then I think the bigger providers were able to, you know, get um, infection control nurses to advise them and have crisis meetings and train the staff and do all those things. But I think the smaller providers have had a lot of trouble. So I think that's been a really big issue about what's going on in aged care. And I think initially the, the government focus was really on ICU beds and making sure that we had provision in the hospitals for looking after the sick people that really took the eye off the ball of what was um, the tragedy that was we were seeing uh, in the UK and in Italy in aged care settings. So um, I think it's been a very tough time and I think it must be very difficult for anybody who is in aged care now or who has a relative in aged care worrying about, you know, are they okay? Are they safe? What should we do? Should we take our, our relative out? You know, there's a whole lot of um, difficult decisions and discussions that families are having. And it's all based on the fact that a lot of facilities, especially in Victoria, have pretty much been in lockdown for the last three or four months. So they've barely seen their um, relatives as well, which is really, really terrible. And to be trying to make those sorts of decisions when you've hardly had any face-to-face -face contact is, I mean, I just can't imagine what a terrible time they're all going through. So, um, I mean, I think at any time going into aged care is difficult, but particularly at this point in time, it must be a very, very difficult decision for people to make. And, and how are they being supported? What sort of support services are available to some of these elderly people? Uh, I'm thinking counsellors, psychologists. Uh, well, really, um, up until recently, um, there was no provision for, uh, for psychological support services in aged care. Uh, it just wasn't funded in any way. Um, so people in aged care weren't able to access, say, a mental health plan that you could get through your GP. Now, that is changing, but even so, it's been very, very limited. I know that Swinburne have been doing a big study on the psychological impacts of um, moving into aged care and whether intensive support can help with that. So we're sort of waiting to hear on the outcome of that study, probably being affected a bit by the lockdown. But... Um, uh, it's really limited and a lot of it falls back on just relationships with family and staff. And as we know, the staff are really, really well-meaning and a lot of them are doing their best, but they're just not well-paid or well-trained. Yeah, that's, that's, that's not good to hear. Um, and as a geriatrician, what, what's your role currently in the COVID crisis within aged care? What, have you been had to step up to do different things? Um, well, I, um, I should have a bit of a disclaimer. I do have an advisory role with an aged care provider. So I've been involved in some of the, um, the, the pandemic planning with them. But my sort of normal job is with Monash Health and I'm, I run an aged care ward out at one of the subacute sites. And um, we are actually not looking after COVID patients at the moment, but we're having a lot more push through from the acute hospitals because they're trying to um, deal with more aged care. Um, Olivia, just to, to change tack a bit, um, what sort of things does a geriatrician do? I mean, how is a geriatrician different to, say, a GP or a, or a general physician? Um, I guess our focus is more not so much on the diagnosis of what someone has, but about how that diagnosis affects their function. So we're all about functional um, abilities. So can you walk? Can you go to the toilet? Can you make yourself a cup of tea? You know, can you read the paper? Um, how can you interact with other people? All of those types of things. So they're the effects of your um, physical illness, but it's not. It's it's more about how that um, physical disability or medical illness is affecting your ability to take part in your daily activities. And could you tell us what some of the rewarding parts of your job are not so rewarding? Um, oh, I, I have a great job. Um, I see the absolute best of humanity in my job. I see families who, you know, go to extraordinary levels to support their older relatives. And you just sometimes it just brings you to tears, the, uh, the way that people uh, put themselves out to support their family members.
and, and not so rewarding? Well, you also see um, some of the not so rewarding in that we are seeing a lot more elder abuse now, particularly to do with um, financial um, mismanagement. And also, I guess that that's a concern that I have about the financial implications of the pandemic, that um, there will be a greater risk of people um, taking advantage, particularly financially, but also just the stress of caring, meaning that there might be more risk of other forms of elder abuse as well. Mm. I was going to ask, Olivia, just in the time of COVID-19, have you seen, I suppose, more um, people in the older age bracket embrace technology and technological communication? Like, I, I feel like sort of needs must here. Like, if you if there's no other choice, then maybe that might kind of throw them into using uh, tech that they might not have otherwise used. Yeah, for sure. And we're, we're now, I work in a memory clinic um, at Alfred Health, and we're now doing um, uh, dementia assessments sometimes over the phone, um, over, you know, um, FaceTime, over, you don't tell the bosses this because we're all meant to use the secure health direct, but in reality, we do what we do, you know, you make do and the, the families and the patients have been fantastic with trying new things. And it's been really great to see them um, realise that actually they can have a Zoom meeting and, um, and actually talk to people and get something worthwhile out of it. So it's been great. I was going to say, Olivia, my parents were, um, they were vehemently opposed to Zoom and now have become Zoom addicts. I can't get them off it. Um, and, and Olivia, how did you get into geriatrics? What was the pathway? Um, well, I was doing um, uh, training um, in physician training at Royal Melbourne Hospital and we had a rotation out to um, what was Mount Royal back in the day. It's now, I think, the Parkville campus of Royal Melbourne Hospital. And they had, it was, I think at the time, one of the biggest um, public hospitals in uh, Victoria it had over 700 patients. And there were all these back wards with hundreds of patients that no one ever really saw or talked to. And I just loved walking around, chatting to these people and hearing the stories of their lives. And I just got hooked on it. And that's why I ended up going down the path I'd chosen. In oh, fact, wonderful. That's, it's, I think, you know, psychiatrists and uh, geriatricians and endocrinologists, there might be one or two other groups of specialists, don't have an intervention. That is, don't you know, stick needles in people or do operations. And the satisfaction very much comes from that personal interaction, doesn't it? That learning about people's lives. And I can, I can imagine, Olivia, that sitting down with an older person who is, who is, who has had so much experience, you know, and you, you, it's, it's, it's like watching, well, not like, but it's kind of like watching a series of movies on TV about different epochs in, 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 in history. And this person's actually lived it. And I, you know, yeah. I, I visit my mum, who's elderly, obviously. And, you know, I've heard this, uh, there is not, you know, she keeps telling me stories that I haven't heard before. And I'm surprised. I think, really? You lived in Spain for a year? When did that happen? <laughs> you know? And then she'll be telling me all about what it was like, uh, you know, um, in, uh, in Barcelona. And it's just, it's this wonderful kind of uh, interaction you get. And, and I agree with you. It's so uplifting. I had the same experience too. Um, and that's what led me to psychiatry. I just like talking to people and, hey, mm. you know, I got paid to do this. And, you know, and sometimes you can even help people too type of thing. Um, yeah. There must be parts of you that 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 uh, that I guess tr are triggered, and and that you kind of feel. Do you ever feel a sense of, gee, I wish I could do more, type of thing? Oh, definitely. I mean, my main area of um, specialty is dementia, yeah, and um, and it can be very challenging, obviously, for the person involved, their family, but also as the treating clinician, because there's often not that much that we can add um, or offer in the way of medications or things like that. But I think that actually there is a lot that you can offer by just offering your time and listening to people because nowadays, you know, the GPs are the core, the rock of our medical um, system, but they, they do not have the time that it can take to um, actually take a bit of a history from an older person, particularly someone with dementia, and to do the sort of assessments that you need to do. And I think that's something that, you know, with geriatrics, we have the, the, the ability to spend that time. And I think that's a real luxury for us. Um, I can remember a long time ago you telling me a story about doing a home visit 
and there was a gentleman who you went to see and he had a considerable amount of money under his bed. <laughs> Do you want to tell us about that one? Oh, well, there's actually been quite a few of those sort of stories, Penny, over the years. Um, uh, and I think some of the things is that um, with that story or lots of others, it's about having to be flexible. Like I've done assessments of people through car windows. I've done them through closed doors. I've done them over fences. Um, and, and I think you just have to be in this line of work, especially working in the community, and hats off to all of our um, people who work in in any community role, but in particularly in aged care, um, they really are the most fantastic people in that they have um, have to do, you know, go above and beyond the call. And and I remember one guy we went and visited, actually lives around the corner from me, which was so surprising. And we went to see him because a neighbour said, oh, there's a man chopping um, branches off the trees in the street. And we thought, oh, God, okay, what, why? We went to see him. He, he wouldn't really let us in initially, but in, then in the end he let us in. And what he was doing was he had no heating in this house. He was chopping down trees and had a fireplace in the middle of his lounge room on the floor. Sure. And uh, when we went in, the only thing that vaguely concerned us was right beside the wall was the axe. But um, <laughs> in the end, he unfortunately had very severe dementia and had to go into care. But... Um, you know, it was interesting that here he was living in this house that looked okay from the outside in the middle of the suburbs and nobody had really noticed that this man living in their midst was uh, very sort of very demented and very isolated and yet um, uh, he was, you know, he was there and it took a while for people to sort of come around. And I think that's another message out of this lockdown is the importance of community and people actually, you know, reaching out to their neighbours who might be a little bit isolated, checking up on them. And I think that has been something that we've seen and I think that's a great positive to come out of a pretty bad time. So, so Olivia, if you are worried about somebody in your neighbourhood, what, what can you do? Um, well, there you can, obviously, if you've got severe concerns, call the police and they can do a welfare check on someone. The other main um, body who do sort of do assessments of people in the community is the aged care assessment team. And every um, region in um, Australia is actually covered by an aged care assessment team. The way um, people, and Jean goes through this a bit in her discussion, is how you access that normally is through the My Aged Care website. Um, so that might be a portal for people to call. But also local GPs are a really great resource as well because they'll often know people in the area. Um, but I think it is important that people do reach out, particularly to the individual, first of all, and say, are you OK? Yeah, I think that's lovely. So and I'll just give one quick example. My husband um, puts out the rubbish bins for an elderly doctor who lives at the bottom of our street he always every Sunday night he's down there and he puts out her bins he doesn't sometimes see her but these and and not only is it nice for her but it's nice for him to be doing something in the community yep. he's done it for years mm. yeah, great. you, you know yeah. Olivia you were talking before about just having a presence <clears throat> being in a room with somebody and uh, I was talking about this with the junior doctors uh, at the hospital where I work, and they were saying, "Yeah, that's important, but younger people nowadays can do that via screen, and it's it's a it's a it's a different thing." And me being part of the generation, my generation, uh, you know, physical presence is so important. Just being in a room, even if you're just silent, is such a powerful statement of a connection with somebody. And what came to mind, I'm not sure if you've seen the Ricky Gervais. Um, Yes. A series called Afterlife, where his father mm. is severely dementing. And it's, it's, it's terribly sad and poignant. But he just sits in the room sometimes and is quiet. And it's such a beautiful tenderness connection. You know, silence is a very powerful communicator. I mean, there's all a whole lot of different types of silence. And I just, I just find that, as you say, just having time is, is so important, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the other thing I'd also say, not only um, sort of being there, but actually touch. Mm. I think that touching people especially older people is a really important way of communicating and um, you know I try and teach the students at the hospital you know to get on the same level as the person that they're talking to sit down hold their hand touch them um, because I, I know it's difficult in this you know COVID environment mm. and at the, at the hospital we've got masks we've got face shields we look like aliens to all of our, our gloves and um but I think you can still have that personal touch and I think that's a really therapeutic um thing that we can offer 
Oh, lovely. Hey, just whilst we've got a geriatrician on the line, um, in the remaining sort of minute or two, Olivia, are there any new uh, medications coming down the pipeline for uh, dementia? No, unfortunately, um, there's been a huge amount of money thrown at um, trying to find a, a treatment for dementia. There are still trials going on, but that we just haven't had anything come out in the last, say, 20 years. But what we are seeing is that there's a whole lot more evidence about the benefits of things like exercise, eating properly, um, minimising other medications. So there's still a lot you can do, even if we don't have new drugs. Hey, just on that point about exercise, my wife, who's a physiotherapist, told me this. She said the one of the best forms of exercise is to do exercise and cognitive stuff at the same time. So dancing is really good because you're exercising and thinking where you're going to put your feet. Yep. Yeah. Yep, definitely. Isn't it? Yeah. Terrific. And that's why she's trying to get me to do the salsa, which is very, very hard. And I'm not good on the dance floor, let me tell you. Thank you so much, Olivia Gobbo, for joining us this morning on Radio Therapy. That was really, really uh, great uh, having a chat. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Good morning, Jean Kitson. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Excellent. I'd love to be living in New South Wales at the moment. I know we're so lucky. I feel so grateful and I'm so sorry for Melbourne and I'm really, I've my brothers down there. I've got lots of friends down there, you know, and I just, I can feel it and we feel your pain and we're all really nervous up here and I do wear a mask and people do look at me as if I've got the virus. So, you know, I have to keep sort of looking away in, <laughs> in shame, but um, we're all, we're, we're so sorry uh, that the virus is, is what's happening in Melbourne. We're, we really are. We, talk yeah, about we, hope, we hope New South Wales can learn and be sensible and maybe mask up as much as possible and physical distancing, you're going to get the benefit of what's what we didn't do so well. Yeah, I um, think we but, know that, yeah. I think yeah, we're learning uh, that from you. Yeah. Uh, so, Jean, how are your parents? Could you tell us how old they are? Mum's 96 and Dad's 93. He's her toy boy. Well, so, no. they, yeah. <laughs> they're doing all right. You know, they're very elderly. They've lost – you were talking about technology before for, the, for our elders, and that is fantastic, but mine have lost their sight and their hearing's not so good. So to um, be able to use technology, I don't think there's a lot of technology that still has a long way to go. I got mum one of those Google Nest things so she didn't have to wake up dad at four o'clock in the morning and go, Roy, what's the time? What's the time? <laughs> because she doesn't know, ever know what the time is because she's been blind for years. But so I got one of those, you know, things you have to go, hey, Google, what's the time? But because she's had a stroke, she can't say Google, and so it won't ever answer her. So I think I have to try Lexi or Siri or something now. But you know, I think that I think technology's got a way to go yet to you know compensate for people with different um, you know capacity. Ah, that yes, uh, and I think there's been people stepping up for all sorts of um, issues, wearing masks, and um, we were talking before in the green room about people learning signing. So that there's been a big influx in in that sort of training for people. So so interesting. Yeah. So kick us off with the book. Tell us about the background or what what was the trigger for it? Well, um, I I was trying to look after mum and dad. I was trying to you know we were talking about community involvement. Liv was talking about that and and it takes a, we know the expression it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it also takes a village to make sure our elders reach safe harbour at the end of their lives and they have the best life possible. And it takes a lot of people and often we're on, you know, people can find themselves on their own trying to manage and help their parents and not know where to go. And, and I, I wasn't, I've got the support of my family and my, my sister and I do a lot together 
my brother's down in Melbourne, so, you know, it's harder for him to be involved. But it takes a lot of navigating systems and bureaucracies and, and care and homes and wondering whether they should move out of their home or move into a retirement. It takes a lot. And I was doing that and I felt like I was making all these mistakes. And when your parents are elderly, uh, you know, elderly and you make a mistake, you feel like, oh, the, you know, it has such can have such big repercussions like you don't want to move your parents too early out of their home or encourage them to move too early and then you don't want them to move too late and you you want to make sure they have the right care in place and oh all these things so I kept making all these mistakes so I wrote the book so that people wouldn't make the same mistakes as I did and so every you know I've got there's a, there's I go into the minute really of how to how to care for your aging uh, parents and how to navigate aged care, my aged care, how to navigate hospitals, who to talk to in hospitals to get the right information because often, you know, we're just, often we'll talk to the person giving the tea. Mind you, they know a lot, but, you know, <laughs> but, you know, all those things and how to financially, elder abuse is such a huge thing as Liv was saying, how to protect your parents financially, how to get all the legal documents in place. Like mm. people say to me, their mum arrived at the airport and she was asked for photo ID and she showed a picture of herself and her husband on the couch. Now, <laughs> <laughs> so you've got to get all, you've got to make sure everything's in place and, and they're protected and they have a solicitor who's, who's for them, not your solicitor, their solicitor. And, and in, in the book, it goes through everything you need to do to make sure they are safe, that they're, that they're not fearful, that they're comfortable, that, they, that you are listening to their wishes and you are doing what the best for them. Do you know, uh, Jean, that point about navigating the healthcare system is, is, it really struck a chord with me because I'm in the healthcare system. I think I know it pretty well. And then when my dad needed care, it was like I needed to get a PhD in navigating all, uh, services I'd never even heard of, F- forms so thick that, you know, it was impo- they were impossible to fill out, you know, with, it would take hours just to answer one question. So, you know, more power to you for that because until you actually confront and, – and, and you're also confronting all these challenges at a very emotional time too, aren't you? Of course, of course. It's very – it's sad to see your loved ones um, get older and it's sad to see um, not as much joy in their lives mm. as you would like. I would love my parents to laugh a bit more, but often when I visit them, I'm, I'm checking in to see how they are rather than just having a chat and shooting the breeze and sharing a few jokes. And it's a good reminder to that and time, you know, time is everything. You, you've got to give your loved ones, elderly loved ones, time mm. and yourself time with them. But those forms, let me just give you my top tip. My number one tip in the book is get a notebook, a big one, and write everything down. And when you get onto Centrelink, because often when you're elderly, it's the first time you've had to do had anything to do with a lot of bureaucracies or Centrelink. And when you get on Centrelink, get a reference number, write that reference <laughs> number down. That is your conversation reference number. Tattoo that reference number on your forehead. You know, use it as a pin number. Name your dog after that reference number. Write it down. And when they say fill out this form, get the number of the form because there are like 2,000 forms of that can, you know, they'll say, fill the form out that asks for, you know, services in the home. Well, there might be, you know, a dozen different forms. So get the actual number of the form, write that down, record everything, everything, get that notebook. Yeah. Uh, you go on, Pen. Yeah. Are, th- are there any um, online parts of reducing that workload? Online in what way? In filling out forms. Well, you can fill that. Some are some are much simpler than you imagine. You know, so uh, often it's just a fear of forms. I have a fear of forms. I can't bear forms. I I sort of freeze as soon as I see a form. But when you get down to it, all the forms are online somewhere. But I have a friend. She works. She's a bureaucrat. She works for the government and she said oh Jean it's really easy look at this blah, 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 blah. you know tap 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 on my aged care site got the form and there it was so I closed it down and then I could never find it again 
So I think bureaucrats set up websites with their own, it's not instinctive. It's yes. not It's not a natural way of finding things. You can never find things again. I found really interesting information online and could never find it again, you know, yeah. on, on websites, uh, on um, government websites. It's really hard. You know, really this fear of forms thing, I, um, I think it's, there's, there's a word in psychiatry, I think it's called counterphobia. It's when you kind of do the opposite of what you're scared of. And I remember I was, I was about 24, so this is a long time ago, and I was filling out a visa application for, um, for the United for America, and it said, uh, any distinguishing marks? And I thought, yeah, a really bad dress sense. So I sent that in. And about a week later, I get this really terse phone call from the American embassy saying, what are you doing with our forms? So I learned from that, you know, be respectful to the form. Always fill it out correctly. Oh, yeah, there's no sense of humour in no. filling out forms. There's no laughs in a form. No. no. They don't say, you know, what's your favourite joke today or, you know, can you tell us a joke and we'll give you permission or you'll get more money. No way. So, so Jean, I think you're the perfect person to write a book like this because you're of your background with humour and and that wonderful cartoonist that's in... That <laughs> what's his name again? <laughs> uh, PC. <laughs> Patrick Cook, who, uh, a disclaimer, he is my husband, but he makes everything so... He just compliments everything so much and he's so hilarious and his cartoons are really, are really fantastic. But in a, in a book like this, I, re- I wanted it to be accessible and humorous and people not to want, go away and want to cut their throats about it because it can be very challenge, challenging. Love that word. It can be challenging and end of life is really sad and there's and because we don't talk about dying and death much we um it can often go all pear-shaped at the end and there's a you know even in hospitals they're not set up to um you know help the dying or help Mm. people die they're set up to cure people and diagnose and treat and so this is a whole there's a lot of things about our society that needs changing about how we view uh, aged care and uh, and aging. Do you reckon we've kind of? I mean, I know the answer to this, but maybe you could expand upon it. This idea of uh, respecting the elderly and and well, I guess valuing them more than we do, because there are you know other societies. Um, um, I'm thinking of uh, you know European, Asian, Middle Eastern societies. They put a a, a, a kind of a value on on the experience of the elderly. Well, even calling our elders elderly, elderly is a condition. Mm. It's not a person. Mm. You're not a. You're mm. not a. You're not elderly. Mm. Mm. You Good might point. be elderly if you're. You know, if that's your condition. But mm. you're an elder, and mm. you're an older person. Mm. So even even the way we refer to our our elderly people as elderly, our mm. elderly, yeah. Well, I think First Nation uh, people do that really well. They have the elders, and they are respected. You know, it doesn't... Well, we used to have that. We used to have the expression, respect your elders, but I don't know where that's gone. But we've, I think we have this great, um, you know, we we spend a lot of time trying to be youthful and bowing down to the fountain of youth and youth is everything that that we've uh, tried to push away our our elderly, elderly, citizens really and also you know you keep hearing them they're they're a burden but Mm. you know you hear that from governments you hear that from the community but our elders are not a burden let's Mm. start with that idea they're not a burden to the community they're not a burden to the family they're not Mm. a burden to the government they're not a burden to the economy they are people who have added their experience and their knowledge and their taxes to the fabric Mm. of our community they've Mm. added their productivity to our lives they are a really important part of our lives Mm. and we should start thinking about that a little more and thinking about pushing them, outsourcing their care a little Mm. less and pushing them away a little less and hiding them off a little, you know, a little less. I agree, Jean. Like, I think it's such a wonderful message you gave there. And I was actually thinking, like, my mum and dad won't mind me sharing this, I'm sure, but they're like, Dr. G-Spot. Of course, they call me my radio name. That is <laughs> um, 
that like you're our last hope we don't trust your brothers if we're in a crooked nursing home you need to help us and like sort of being a younger person I'm like oh gosh this is being thrust upon me quite early isn't it and I, I'm wondering Jean like did you wish you maybe had a thought about some of these things earlier like maybe thought about your book earlier like what advice would you give to those of us with sort of slightly younger parents but we'll we'll be in this bracket fairly soon well, I, my advice is not to start worrying too early. I realise that I've been worrying about my dad getting on the roof, you know, and fixing the roof with two, where, with the, where his hips are 25 years younger than him. And I've been worrying about that since he was 75, which now seems quite young to me. That was 25 years ago or something. Um, I don't think my maths is very good. 20 years ago. And um, so don't start worrying too early. I really, I really feel that. But um, my book, I actually wrote my book for my kids but because, you know, often I've made too many mistakes with mum and dad. So re in reality, I wrote it, wrote it so that we could set everything up, have everything in place so we're not worried about things we haven't talked about. We've talked about it because conversations, you know, and that's the title of the book we need to talk about mum and dad, conversations go on and on and on. And it's interesting you, you mentioned family because, you know, most families, have issues you know dealing with each other and have different opinions and they might when I you know not my family my family hasn't got a bad sibling my family are pretty much perfect but hey, most families have a bad sibling and um, you have to protect families you know and and it takes a lot of conversations for you all to agree and for you all to be on the same page and eventually you get there but you have to keep getting back to it sometimes you need an MMA referee or a high court judge to you know help you with these conversations but always talk about it so that was a long one um g-spot dr g-spot but uh just keep talking keep discussing and and follow um follow my book it'll just do one chapter at a time you'll be right <laughs> i will Jean. i'll work through like one chapter a year and it should time quite right <laughs> her, her parents i might point out are our age Jean. so you know <laughs> <laughs> i suspected that that's why don't start too early <laughs> so Jean, i we really do want to reiterate how what i've read i haven't quite finished it it's terribly respectful and um, it, it re I wish I had have read something like this, you know, a few years ago when mum was dying. Um, I, I, it's a great resource. And um, I, I'm getting the feeling from Olivia Gobbo, the geriatrician who's been on the show with us, that she thought it was a good read as well and helpful. So uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big plug for this book. All my friends with, um, with their parents are going to get this book for Christmas. So... Uh, I'm thrilled with it. Thanks, Nurse EpiPen. I really, really appreciate that. Thanks. Shall I read out the name? It's called um, We Need to Talk About Mum and Dad, A Practical Guide to Parenting Our Ageing Parents by author Jean Kitson, who is joining us now on Radiotherapy. Hey, Jean, can I ask you about your other book? Because I, seriously, every time I read this title, it just makes me smile. You're still hot to me, the joys of menopause. Tell me. Um, first of all... Who... I don't know why you're laughing about that. <laughs> I, know, well, I'm, I have so, no idea why you find that funny. It's a respectful laugh. No, it's because when I get together with... Uh, uh, women who are the same age of me, who have who are going through or have gone through menopause, that the hot flushes are something that people talk about all the time. And, oh yeah, yeah. You know, it, I know the hot flushes are so debilitating, yeah. and they can be different from every for every woman. And I first got a hot flush. I was on stage. I was doing a corporate event for all these young tech heads. So <laughs> it's like. 400 men in the room mainly yeah. and I'm on stage and I had this silk top on and I suddenly started going god is it hot in here <laughs> you know the classics I'm up, up on the at the on stage at the lectern talking away and then suddenly I'm getting beads of sweat on my forehead and then I'm feeling hot around the neck and then I'm feeling hot I looked down I I started perspiring I had great big rings under my breasts I in my my silk shirt had turned into like this camouflage thing I'm wiping my head like this river was running off my forehead and then when I went to fight you know and so of course I was humiliated and 
And in, in comedy, if you start sweating on stage, it's called a fop sweat and it means that you, you're um, nervous, you're mm. anxious. So for a comedian to start sweating on stage, it means like you, it, the audience smell fear. They think it's fear <laughs> and they think you're, you know, like you're worrying and you're anxious and then they, they get very predatory. They get very impatient with a comedian who's wiping <laughs> the like they're, like they're, you know. So then I wrote the book because... Basically, I couldn't find the information I needed, mm. uh, the truth about HRT mm. and things mm. like that, mm. a truth about treatments. And I didn't actually even know how the hot flushes worked, why your body did it. So mm. in the book is um, a lot about the history of menopause. It's all about the treatment, what's safe so women mm. can actually get the right information. Because if you Google menopause, you'll get, you know, 200 million mm. hits of mm. using crystals and essential oils or something. But you know like when you're a prof when you're a but all women who need to maintain their works you know their work I mean the one story that really re resonated with me was a gynecologist said to me um her she had a friend who was a physician a surgeon and she rang up at 10 and at 10 o'clock at night and said I was just operating and I got a hot flush and my glasses fogged up <laughs> speaking of glasses fogging up with masks what do I do and of course she was immediately put on some nice HRT straight away so women who know and who understand and who you know who have the information know what to do yeah, but yeah. It's, it's a, yeah. is the is the book still out there Yes, I believe so. Well, I've got some. Just call me. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's um, it's certainly been a, a delight talking to you. Now, Jane, we've probably only got about thirty seconds left. If you could leave us with just your top tips for people who have got aging parents, tip number one is get the book. But what would some others be? Do you reckon? Well, as I said earlier, get a notebook and write everything down. Get yourself some support to get a wing person yeah. and just keep your parents at the centre of all conversations. Don't make them feel helpless. Don't treat them as if they are helpless and just, you know, look after them. Fantastic. Listen to them. Listen to them. Listen to them. Good on you, Jane. Thank you so much for joining us here on Radiotherapy. Really appreciate it. And the name of the book, again, is called... We need to talk about mum and dad, a practical guide to parenting our ageing parents by author Jean Kitson. Thanks so much, Jean, for joining us. You've been listening to Radiotherapy. It's been an absolute blast being with you, especially when the technology all works really, really well. Um, we've got also love to thank uh, Dr. Olivia Gobbo, who joined us and is actually still on the line and listening in the background on Zoom. How's that for technology? Hi. This is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.